Okay, dear me loud, you've been kind of hogging the airwaves for the past two episodes, and we've all been sitting here waiting to get our two cents in on your five conceptual models, or whatever you call them. I know I've been waiting to meet all my old friends in the celestial world, the divine world of the gods, as those scholars all call it. For me, it's just me old friends. The animals and the humans who look like animals and the giants and the other big dudes who stride cover more than a league. They all live right here on Earth and I'm with them every day. They're just not limited by time or the force of gravity or stuff like that. And there's thousands of them, every shape and size. Take your pick. So I'm waiting to get into the world you call multiplicity. And I'm waiting to see how all this is going to relate to how we live good lives, how we can know what we don't know, as Socrates said, and use that knowledge to distinguish what's right and good from what is not. I guess I may have to wait to your fifth model. Yes, the one I meant to call universality in the last episode. Yes, because that may just be something all humans universally share in common. Some sense of acting on what we think is right and justified, even though the content of rightness may very well be defined by or influenced by the customs of the culture we live in, for better or worse. But at the meta level, we generally take ourselves to be doing something that is justified, that's the right or best thing to do, under the circumstances, even, even the enforcer doing somebody up is honoring the code of the Borgata. Well, just where does science come into this picture, as you think? Certainly not in the fourth model, where science would be golden since there's nothing intelligible to be said about any concept of God anyway. Now hold on, Dr. Venostrin. The good angelic doctor of Aquino was not afraid to see reason as the gift of nature, and therefore a gift of God. That's just one picture of God, and probably the worst, because there's only one of them. And he looks like a dirty old man with a long beard. People, people, gentlemen, and ladies, I think. You'll all get your chance to have at it. But I promise we begin by looking at what may be the most complex world first, the world of multiplicity, which may actually have been the earliest world humans found themselves living in. So, Penta, you'll feel right at home. But I want to preface our journey into the world of multiple beings representing religious phenomena by saying a bit more about how I imagine human religiousness began. Now, this is my own little theory, and you can knock it about if you wish, but here goes. When humans first began to see themselves as a species of living beings separate from the environment immediately around them, let's say occurring as early as humans began to travel or migrate into different environments, so they had different topographical and climatic features and new plants and animals to compare with one another, and when they began to see the sky and starry heavens as fundamentally separate from Earth, and when they encountered large bodies of water, they needed to put these differentia in mind in some coherent way that offered, first, information, rules of thumb, for things that worked to help sustain their life, including methods of hunting, 
gathering foodstuffs, and eventually growing food crops. Second, identifiers for threats to survival and procreation in the form of objects of danger, places, animals, thunder and lightning, other humans, or entities of greater power or authority. Third, ways to protect themselves from danger, from certain places or animals, from dangerous humans, through avoidance, escape, appeasement, that's possibly the beginnings of ritual behavior. And fourth, ways to give meaning to relationships, primarily within the procreative family, but also for the clan or tribal group and in time with other similar groups of humans. And so it became increasingly natural to perceive entities to help actuate a way of dealing with these needs. I don't want to say humans simply invented such entities, although a dynamic interaction was involved in it. It was something closer to an actual perception in which the environment's impact on emotions associated with what William James had called the fringes of conscious awareness we discussed in episode eight, presented an inescapable reality to the aspect of our cognition where human valuing is formed, valuing constituting creation of a coherent conceptual model, the pre-conscious first stage of comparing the significance of one thing against another, and from which certain actions followed and others were avoided. To the extent that the correspondence between actions and model worked, the nature of the entities had life and could then be fleshed out in greater detail. Perhaps narratives came to be associated with the activities of these transhuman beings as such, which means that early humans were operating somewhat metaphorically, where transhuman beings stood for a coherent network of values or priorities the individual came to operate with depend on for food and sustenance, require for survival. This is not metaphor in some current literary sense. That's far too deliberate, constructed. Rather, it's one in which the metaphor-like perceptual image of behavior associated with transhuman entities represented a better picture of reality than any other pictures available. Think of it as the way in which an Al Hirschfeld line caricature of some individual could actually better represent the uniqueness of that individual than any photograph, or how the verbal description of the catcher on a baseball team as barrel-chested conveys far more than a set of measurements. It's a question of bringing sets of facts under the aegis of certain values and associated powerful emotions. Now, since the individual human body, also animal bodies, and the various performance modes of human entities existing within the procreative family were readily at hand, it was convenient to model both helpful, benevolent, but also dangerous and erratic beings on human fundamental roles and behaviors already known and observed 
but projected onto a level of reality that transcended their immediate environment. This projected reality that stood both apart from the reality of their daily tasks, but also encompassed it and interacted with it, became their first religious umwelt. Now, as humans were for the first time experiencing newness in their migrations and cross-clan interactions, it was natural to see their religious umwelt in quite fragmented terms. Hence, finding transhuman entities was by necessity equally fragmented, producing the plethora of dangerous spirits and demons, of powerful familiar beings such as ancestors and heroes and leaders, and even more powerful benefit-bestowing entities that represented and gave names to aspects of natural forces and sources of food, and cosmic all-controlling or order-maintaining beings seen as worthy of respect that became divine beings, deities, gods, all the beings that populate religious worldviews which see reality as an inherent multiplicity. Human migrations across new geographies and cultural topographies, one could call these transition points in human evolution periods of liminality and crisis. Liminality because they represented thresholds, a sense of being on both sides of a boundary, a state of being in both past and present, in which one way of thinking and behaving was forced to consider others based on the particular nature of the newness of environment and arenas of danger experienced. Crisis because the newness was dangerous in the sense that these were occasions in which the question, why do we exist, was raised. The question of what kind of being are we that we should exist here in this world. The experience of being between multiple states of being occurs at the individual level, in the lives of humans, especially at natural transitions during the growth and aging of persons, and in the unanticipated crises that beset them in which the routine of waking, working, eating, sleeping is sharply broken. This is what was meant in speaking of religious myths being perceived as making transition points and crises of individual lives meaningful in relation to general human origins and crises and endings, where the global religious myth connects with real conditions of individual lived human experience. This experience also occurs for the human species at the corporate level, that is, insofar as human evolution has been based on cooperation and collaboration among individuals such that it allows the experience of a world, an umwelt, to be shared. In terms of specifically what aspects of the existing or changed environment prompted particular deified beings to come into existence in, in the minds of humans, one can speculate that some were likely objects of the greatest perceived difference from those in the immediate surroundings. Objects producing dots of light in the heavens, for example, clearly not here, 
far from here, distant, because the light was so small and humans could already discern things being smaller that were further away. Some of these lit objects also seemed to move from night to night on paths of their own unique making, lending the possibilities of personality and intentionality and action to the objects. Other objects from the immediate environment were also different. Beyond those to be consumed, some animals were large and dangerous, others small and repulsive. The closeness of the shared living environments of humans and animals might have made it seem quite natural to imagine bimorphic creatures who were part human, part animal, or multifunctional hybrid beings, animals with parts of other multiple animals. But these are all clearly speculations, of course. If you think about this theory from the standpoint of Western exclusivist monotheism, you realize that your very first contact with institutional religion may have begun with being told, or it's being clearly implied, that all the various gods and spirits and demons and other transhuman beings of mostly ancient polytheistic religious beliefs were not really gods at all, not worthy of serious attention. They were mere fictions conjured by the minds of primitive, uninformed people who were unable to see the unity and coherence as the order of existence that was created by an intelligent, omnipotent, beneficent mind. Humanity was, in a sense, just waiting for the truth, revelation of the one true singular God who from sheer nothingness created all that exists. This is the loving God to whom you owe absolute allegiance because it is the one true God who also created you, if you believe all that. Okay, now we need to pause theory and get out the manuscript's descriptions of religious phenomena representing an actual umwelt of multiplicity. We'll start with Canaanite religion partly because the region represented a population that was itself one of multiplicity, rather fragmented, and partly for its fortuitous setting as background to a different religious conceptual model that emerged from it, the model called singularity that evolved into Western monotheism. In the following episode, we'll return to one more part of this theory, but then we'll try to more systematically extract some of the major shared features of the umwelt of multiplicity. We're trying to get some sense of what it would actually be like to perceive the world this way, especially for those who themselves are religiously situated outside faith traditions that remain largely polytheistic today. We'll also begin to apply the second question that seeks to uncover which of the possibilities of phenomena of a religious world of multiplicity remain coherent and meaningful under investigation and which become self-defeating. And we'll also look further at the umwelt of multiplicity seen in parts of ancient Egyptian and aspects of Greek and Roman popular religion. All right, all right, get up.
The region we're talking about is the Levant. It's from the French Levant Rising, which refers to the Mediterranean seaboard lands east of Italy where the sun rises, present-day Israel and Palestine, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Lebanon, and parts of Syria. When Canaanite religion was practiced, so from the early Bronze Age, 2000 to 1500 BCE, through the first centuries of the Common Era, the Levant did not exist as unified countries. It was divided into various city-states. People inhabiting the Levant referred to the land as Kanana'um, possibly related to the Hebrew Kana'ani for merchant, but most likely to the Akkadian term kinahu, which was a purple dyed wool from murex mollusks that were exported. Post 1200 BCE, from the Iron Age onward, some historians refer to this people as Phoenicians, although it was the same culture. Canaanite religion was the religion of all peoples living in the Eastern Mediterranean seaboard prior to the Common Era. And so glancing ahead, despite what the Bible says, Israelite religion was just one local variety of this larger regional religion. Canaanite religion was the entire collection of ancient Semitic religions whose world was one of multiplicity. It was polytheistic. In some cases, traditions revered one God, but still acknowledged the existence of multiple deities and Jewish monotheism grew out of Canaanite polytheism rather than engaged in some wholesale competition against it. Participation in an umwelt of multiplicity was present in the religious beliefs and rituals that were practiced by the ancient Israelites themselves. This suggests that perception of multiple forms of transhuman beings in worship must have had an intrinsically strong appeal. So what does Canaanite religion look like as a representation of the conceptual model of the world containing a multiplicity of beings? Well, at the center seems to have been concerned for the legitimacy of a divinely ordained kingship and its legal structure. But equally critical was a peasant agrarian emphasis on the tasks and rituals able to produce fertility of crops and domestic animals. 90% of the population was agricultural. Archaeological excavations have exposed Canaanite household religious shrines containing personal artifacts, amulets, ritual utensils. There were also rural religious shrines and these large urban temples with public altars and statues. Religious documents range from stone inscriptions to personal correspondence on broken pottery. An important archive of ancient clay writing tablets was recovered in Ugarit, an ancient port city in northern Syria. Rashamra, it's called, near modern Latakia. It's north of Lebanon where Syria and Turkey meet on the Mediterranean. Among records of economic exchange and remedies for treating horses, it contains narrative epic myths, lists of gods, descriptions of rituals, and Hebrew scripture itself is another resource. 
Canaanite was not an ethnic designation. Rather, it designates a people living in a certain region who shared economic ways of life, limited mobility, customs common to agriculture and husbandry. Their way of life could appear very strange to us, as we described in episode seven, a village settlement consisting of these densely packed houses hidden behind featureless courtyard walls with streets and alleyways leading nowhere, to us might seem to lack rational organization, but to its inhabitants, it represented a clear map of where space was based on patriarchal families and larger kinship units. The concept of Canaanite religion is made difficult because ancient peoples were not aware they were religious in the modern institutional sense of adhering to specific rule-based rituals and beliefs expressed in creeds. Nevertheless, there was shared acceptance of transnatural realities. Regularly repeated ritual activities could include the use of magical formulae, and there was reverence for special geographical places that were different from ordinary places. For example, in Canaanite religion, and in Hebrew scripture as well, some mountains were given special veneration as a meeting place of the gods, a source of water and fertility, the battleground of conflicting natural forces, the meeting place of heaven and earth, the location of divine decrees. In anticipation of the third conceptual model of locality, I would say the mountains here became cosmic in the sense of being directly involved in the governing and stability of the entire living world. In our third conceptual model, the mountain itself will be the location of divine reality. Unlike in Mesopotamia and Egypt, in Canaan, mountains are a prominent feature of the landscape. In Ugaritic texts, different mountains were associated with different deities. The god El's abode was a cosmic mountain above the source of life-giving subterranean waters. While El himself lived in a tent, his dwelling place also seemed to be where the gods met for counsel. It was therefore the place where the power of divine decree affected kingship and ordinary people alike, maintaining both crops of the field and social stability. The Canaanite storm god, Baal, lived on Mount Zaphon, described as an impregnable place where the deity had his temple and kingship palace, where fertilizing streams came forth, where enemies could only stand at its base and rage. The mountain was at the center of an axis where heaven and earth and the underworld were all connected and where communication among them was possible. In ancient Canaan, dreams were one medium of interacting with gods, but interactions also took place through a variety of physical objects that were able to make the gods present. In a sense, these ritual objects became divine reality keys to making the daily lived world ordered and stabilized enough to reduce fears of unanticipated chaos. A scholarship has suggested that in ancient times, a tiered Canaanite society consisted in a governing king, 
who employed an aristocracy of professional warriors. The king and these noblemen ruled peasants who were farmers and artisans, and at the bottom, slaves. The aristocracy's food and drink came from taxes imposed on commoners, and in return, they protected the peasants during crises. Kings in power self-servingly proclaimed that the Canaanite gods chose them. The gods marched to war with the king's armies, provided laws that the king enforced. The king's responsibility was to rule righteously. The taxes that fed the kings and their armies and the priests were ritual offerings given to the gods. Visible physical monuments proclaim kings to be beloved by the gods. And so ancient Canaanite religious politics were a kind of cooperative divine patronage. There was a vertical hierarchy in this structure of authority. As aristocrats and commoners were subordinate to the human king, the human king owed his authority to a particular god who was his divine patron. Other gods were similarly subordinate to this divine patron. The human king was expected to serve the gods by serving the kingdom, bringing righteousness and well-being to people he ruled. But when a king failed, the divine patron god could punish his kingdom, perhaps sending a military enemy even against his own king. Through the chain of authority, kingship, with divine support, maintains stability in the land so that inhabitants at all levels of society could perform the tasks necessary to ensure the fertility of animals and crops and produce a successful harvest. How about hearing how kings communicated with some of these Canaanite gods? Okay, Pentha, here's a stele from one King Zakor in the Syria part of Canaan from the 8th century BCE. The king proclaims his patron god, Baal Shamem, to be on his side. It says, I lifted my hands to Baal Shamem. Baal Shamem answered me. Baal Shamem spoke to me through prophets and heralds. Baal Shamem said, Fear not, I am he who made you king. I stand with you. I deliver you from all those who lay siege against you. So it gives you a feel for the kind of direct personal relationship between one of the gods and the king he made king and stands behind. Well, the underlying morality behind this kind of divine support and patronage from a high god in the Canaanite pantheon seems very strange to us in today's world. It produces a sense that it's ultimately the god who takes credit for the king's actions that are successful. But it also supports motivation to use whatever means are necessary for success. Think of the indiscriminate destruction of ordinary citizens of conquered peoples or the oppression of certain groups of people. Isn't this just displacing existing social prejudices and cultural hatred onto an obscure divine sphere where it somehow gets legitimized? After all, it's the moral compass of Canaanite culture itself that allows for unwarranted, brutal treatment of the innocent citizens of foreign lands. The moral values of Canaanite culture are simply exemplified by the divine patron god. 
So religious morality is ultimately a byproduct of social prejudices, only legitimized by a structure of divine beings. Well, suppose we see the multiple gods as supporting all four ranks in human society, ranks far more sharply defined and separate than social divisions today. So for Canaanite culture, we have the divisions of royal family, nobles, peasants and skilled workers, and fourth, slaves. These social divisions were mirrored quite consistently by four tiers of Canaanite gods. Well, at least that's according to archeologists and text scholars. At the top, supporting royal power and the king's chosen nobles stood the divine patron god and his spouse. In the second rank were environmental gods. These transhuman beings ruled the natural realm and reflected concerns of peasants and the seasonal needs of agriculture, storms that fertilized the land, the nurturing sunlight in the sky. They also concerned the lives of skilled workers who fished endlessly chaotic seas, builders who used materials of the earth, those who tended the eternal underworld. On the third level were social gods who assisted with the practical aspects of daily life, gods of household craftsmanship, childbearing, family ancestors who became gods after death. There was some overlapping of second and third levels. The lowest rank were deputy gods, gods dependent on other gods for their function, corresponding to slaves in human society. These were messengers who served higher gods. The Greek term for messenger, angelos, is the origin of our term, angel. The Canite pantheon was a full one with over 40 beings of various rank and function filling seemingly every niche of human experience. We've already mentioned El and Baal. El, as father of both gods and mortals, was the original head of the pantheon. This is reflected in his epithets, the father of time or of humanity, the bull, and in personal relationships, epithets, the king and the kind and compassionate. El's home was a mountain where he lived in a tent. From the base of the mountain flowed two rivers that were the source of all fresh water in the world. El's son constituted a divine assembly over which El presided. Among records of diplomatic exchange and lists of divine being and remedies for treating horses, in visual art from Ugarit, El is typically depicted as a grandfatherly figure, a patriarch with a beard. But in some narratives, like one text describing a divine drinking party, a much younger drunken El turns out to be a lot raunchier. So gods had personal development in their lives like humans. There were earlier gods that preceded El, and El himself was succeeded by Baal, who became Ugarit's patron deity as Lord of Ugarit. In some texts, El continues to remain the power behind the scenes with Baal acting militarily. It is not unusual in religions of multiplicity that pantheons are not static entities. 
This was the case in Canaan. Asherah, El's wife and consort, was the mother of the gods, and she herself was the principal goddess of Sidon and Tyre. Sometimes Asherah was paired with Baal and was given the name Baalot. Baal himself, Baal Hadu, the thunderer, or in the Bible, Baal Hadad, was god of storms, thunder, and lightning, as indicated by his epithet, the rider on the clouds. His voice was thunder. His home was Mount Zaphon, identified with Jebel Akra, the highest mountain in Syria, it's about 30 miles north of Ugarit. Baal was often experienced as a storm, not unlike descriptions of Yahweh in the language of a mountain storm on Sinai. But Baal also provided essential rain and maintained vegetation by controlling the fertility of grain and other crops. From his military power as the conqueror and lord of the earth, he was the king of gods in most surviving myths. Visually, Baal was depicted as holding a club in one hand and lightning bolt in the other. The sister of Baal, Anat, and daughter of El, was the hot-tempered virgin goddess of conflict and war. Her often unrestrained violence operated outside the control of other gods, including El, her father. One of Baal's attendants, Arce, ruled the underworld. This is where some persisting element of the human body journeyed, where relatives who were living provided food and drink to sustain the body beneath the ground. The goddess Astarte, which is the Hellenized form of Northwest Semitic Atart, had wide devotion from Bronze Age through classical antiquity, including in Egypt. The goddess was associated with the Canaanites and in Ugarit, especially with the Baal epic. Lists of gods from Ugarit also connect her with the Assyro-Babylonian Ishtar and the Hurrian Ishara. Astarte was goddess of love and sexuality and healing, though probably not fertility as had been earlier thought. Like her possible sister Anat, Astarte was also a goddess of war and the hunt. It's been debated if Astarte was an actual consort of Baal. Her closeness to Baal is seen in her title, Baal's Other Self, or The Face of Baal. But Astarte's presence in Ugaritic administrative texts indicate that she was important for the role of kingship. Gopin and Ugar were messengers of Baal. Their names, vineyard and field, reflected Baal's control of agricultural fertility. So one can begin to form a picture of gods and transhuman beings having their own unique development or lack of development in character and human-like aging, making them quite susceptible to human weaknesses, unprovoked temper and anger, lust, drunkenness, vengeance, and retribution. This is understandable insofar as God's embodied aspects of human experience often beyond human control and not understood. God's embodied fundamental paradoxes of human experience storms that both produced rain but were also destructive, or conflicting motives leading to violence, 
violence based on preservation of honor versus simple revenge or greed, justified punishment, and the paradox of the unfathomable mystery of death. Gods also bore odd incompatibilities or idiosyncrasies. A god might live in a tent, but on a mountain that is the source of primordial underlying fresh water on earth. Gods might have larger-than-life capabilities, traveling in giant steps of a league or more, but be susceptible to death from a bird or a poison thorn. There were other deities and beings in the Canaanite world of multiplicity. Gad was god of fortune. Kothar Wahasis was the craftsman of the god who built the god's dwellings and temples and made their weapons. He may have been identified with the Egyptian god Ptah. Katharot was the goddess of marriage and pregnancy and also one of the radiant daughters of the crescent moon. Marquad, a god of dance. Reshef, a god of plague, but also sometimes of healing. You can see almost every aspect of human existence covered by a deity, but agriculture and war were always at center stage. It appears that gods and goddesses could act with humans directly in a shared realm, but this was often capriciously. In one set of epic hero tablets, a childless judge, Danel, communicates with deities through dreams, wishing to have a son. Then with intercession from Baal, El promises Danel a son, Akat. El's promise itself functions as a kind of teaching list of obligatory social duties, of progeny to their parents, of ritual responsibilities to the gods, of human interactions generally. But a gift of bow and arrows presented to Akat raises jealousy from goddess of war and hunt, Anat. For them, she offers gold and immortality, but both of which are refused with insults. So Anat confronts El, who cowers from Anat's threat that she will make El's gray hair run with blood and his gray beard with gore. So El essentially acquiesces to allow Akat to be killed, saying that whatever Anat desires, whoever resists you will be crushed. And so then Anat has Akat killed through a bird that strikes his skull while eating. As a consequence, a drought makes the land infertile for seven years and the crops die. Perhaps the epic gives meaning to natural cycles of fecundity and drought. In any case, the polytheistic patronage hierarchy of Canaanite gods has been called henotheism. The idea here is that one god is the divine patron and others are subordinate to him. From this hierarchy, is it far to the idea that one god is truly god and that other supernatural beings are therefore merely creatures at his command? Yet in the pantheon, Every rank or level of society has its rightful place in a hierarchy with plural gods to serve it. Why give that up? The answer may depend on what kind of society one wants to preserve and who in society is worthy of being preserved. In the Canaanite divine hierarchy, the higher gods play a significant role for the elite classes. 
They provide religious and political legitimacy and a divinely ordained legal structure for those who rule. For lower classes, their daily needs were focused on gods who provided for the fertility of the fields and domesticated animals. But now ask, what is truly essential for society to function and survive over time? In principle, any individual, from king to nobleman to commoner to slave, could find his or her way up or down the hierarchy of the gods, could find gods significant to their own present circumstances. And that might be one of the great appeals of polytheistic religion, that it fits all existing structures within a given society, that there is a spiritual place for every individual of every rank in a society in which one can find a connection with some higher power that is relevant to one's daily life with all its limitations and dangers and anxieties, and that one's own private higher power, as it were, can be seen as coherent within and legitimized by the structure of the entire pantheon under a king who has responsibility for maintaining order and health in a living world. Having one patron at the head simply disperses the power of his authority to make the entire structure work. On the other hand, the multiplicity of deities that cover all aspects in the daily life of a given culture may play an overly conservative function in society. For example, by legitimizing the unearned rank and privilege only certain classes within the society enjoy or by perpetuating prejudices and inequities, or by tolerating abuse within families hidden from public view. Recall Jesus' attack on family values in Mark 3, or the Q Gospel, the Gospel of Thomas. This is giving the individual a place in society, but only that place. So a religion of multiplicity may individualize the nature of spirituality but at the same time also suppress it so that religion itself becomes a double-edged sword. Of course, continually changing demands of time, place, and royal power impacted cultural integrity and were reflected in the continually evolving nature and rank of the gods. For example, the names of the gods in Canaan differed from place to place and from generation to generation. At Bronze Age Ugarit, the highest god was called El, but at Iron Age Sidon, it was Eshmun, and in Moab, it was Chemosh. The myths of Canaan were in perpetual flux and multiple use as well, as comparison of Canaanite and biblical narratives shows. The Canaanite Baal battles the god of the sea, so does Yahweh in the Bible. The Canaanite creator of the earth lives at the source of the great rivers. The Bible's creator does not live at the source of the great rivers, but places his first humans there and visit. The personalities of the gods were also in flux. In the Bible, Jacob declares El is the God of Israel before an altar. Later, this God tells Moses he had been El Shaddai, El of the mountains, but now prefers Yahweh, he who is. Well, this is all well and good. I mean, seeing things from the outside, 
from Canaanite society's view of reality. But these gods, as you call them, are all alive. They're real beings, they have inner lives, they have feelings. Well, maybe this will help. Perhaps a brief but closer look at deities of the several tiers of the pantheon reveals something of the inner lives of the gods as well. El, the more remote high god of creation, was sometimes depicted as a bull. El created the cosmos and oversees it with benevolence. Sometimes El creates by word of mouth, other times by forming creatures from clay. In some instances, El creates by having sexual intercourse with his goddess Asherah. But El also is given the classic picture of an elderly god with a beard. Ugaritic texts depict an endearing old god with a jolly nature as when he sees his wife Asherah approaching. It says, Behold, El saw her. He opened his mouth and laughed. He propped his feet upon the footstool. He twiddled his fingers. And Asherah describes her husband, You are great, El. You are wise. Your hoary beard instructs you indeed. Given this characterization, one may wonder how El could eventually migrate from being the grandfatherly creator god of a pantheon of multiple divine beings to monotheism's abstract god who, as primum movens, ultimately answers quasi-scientific queries about the origin of everything. In addition, how and where does a necessary and humanized divine beneficence come in along with God's divine power? Perhaps God's beneficence is retained in memory by expressions recalling, as here, the homey image of this old guy, feet propped up after a long day of running the world, twiddling his fingers and laughing warmly at the sight of his beloved. Of course, El's wife, Asherah, was eternally busy or doomed in her role of nurturing mother, giving birth to 70 godlike beings and nursing the human royal heirs at her breast. At the same time as Asherah, she evidently had an independent career. At an Iron Age city near Jerusalem, special storage jars were designated for Asherah. In images, she could be a goddess standing on a lion, nude, sometimes holding serpents as perhaps signs of fertility. One can see in the Bible warnings to Israelites never to plant an Asherah that was a holy tree or a kind of wooden post near the altar of Yahweh. This suggests Israelites had been quite happy to include Asherah in their worship. Baal Hadad, Lord of Thunder, or Cloud Rider, was the storm god who brought or withheld fertility for the land. Being a young and strong god, many kings identified Baal as their patron. In one myth, Baal battles with the god Mot, or Death, who rules the underworld and, like the sea, is called El's darling which acknowledges that El is the father of both beneficent and monstrous deities. Baal initially is defeated and dies, descending into the underworld. But later, Baal's sister Anat defeats Mort and rescues Baal. The narrative of this myth is again 
taken as an allegory for the agricultural seasons, natural planting cycles of dying and rising crops. Anat, as we noted, is the young wild virgin goddess, the lady of the high heavens, who is sexually compelling, bloodthirsty in battle. And this is one case that reverses Canaanite patriarchal norms where males do the fighting and women are sequestered. Again, a religion of multiplicity seems to provide an opportunity for everyone if one looks hard enough in the right places. Many gods also populated the third tier of the Canaanite pantheon. Ugarit's god of craftsmanship, Kothar Wahasis, was originally possibly two deities. A small Egyptian god, Bess, was popular because he protected women during childbirth and the household against demons. At Ugarit, the underworld god, Rafu, presided over a banquet of dead kings who became gods. But humans other than kings could also become lesser deities after death. Household gods became teraphim. These were the deified heads or patriarchs of households. Most ordinary people expected no afterlife. People of some social rank might anticipate a possible journey into the underworld after death. But Canaanite religion as did the Bible generally had little to say about life after death for commoners and women or slaves. Gods of the lowest tier, the messengers or angels, remain largely anonymous. As for daily religious rituals and practices, these are difficult to reconstruct because of the absence of records. Glimpses can be seen through artifacts and texts composed by the upper classes. For king and aristocracy, the divine patron God and his cosmic retinue were central. But the kind of righteousness demanded by a patron God still itself reflected the morality of the prevailing culture, as well as the various needs of its government. Down at the level of extended families, the focus was on Canaanite gods who helped with the practical aspects of life. Middle-level gods were called upon to guarantee the fertility of crops and flocks and human wombs. Their agricultural festivals marked seasons of the year. Within the nuclear family and its household, ancestral gods were venerated. Family tombs received offerings. Household gods protected against misfortune or evil. Families acknowledged the king's divine patron at tax time, but he was not the center of a family's daily pious attention. Temples existed primarily to receive and process food offerings. They stored the king's wealth, supported his bureaucracy, served as a rudimentary bank, generally controlled the agricultural economy. Temple rituals could involve slaughter of domestic animals. One form that could be regarded as a shared sacrifice was a peace offering fellowship in which a portion was given to the patron deity and the remainder consumed by worshipers. A second form was a burnt offering in which the animal was given entirely to the patron deity, nothing remaining for humans. The consumption of animal meat was enjoyed largely by the upper classes and priests only. The average commoner or peasant rarely ate meat. Now, I think one can regard such ritual sacrificial meals, shared or for the patron deity alone, as constituting a necessary communion between the divine and human realms. 
one where the ultimate focus comes back to agrarian concerns shared by both common people and kin. Fertility of field and fauna, the crops, domestic creatures consumed for sustenance, the fertility of human mothers for cultural survival. Canaanites, it appears, could behave ritually towards figurines and other physical objects as in some way representing their gods. There were sacrificial acts that both fed and actually draped clothing over these objects. From this, it is possible to infer that the deified objects were seen as quasi-living beings themselves, or at least as housing the power of the deity. Perhaps the closest we can get to understanding this is thinking of the power of a personal amulet or of a religious medal, like a St. Francis medal on your dog, or a St. Anthony pendant helping you find a lost wedding ring. As obscure as language is that characterizes how these revered objects actually work, I do think they are representative of how different entities of religious meaning function in a shared religious umwelt of multiplicity. For Canaanite families, the recently deceased were also honored ritually. But these rituals served the living as well as the dead, since especially in agricultural societies, where doing the same kind of daily work in the fields is passed on through family generations, the veneration of ancestors was a way of reaffirming the identity of family and tradition. The family tomb was itself a deed of property ownership. It was possible for family patriarchs of previous generations to become semi-gods who would then watch over the family and protect its members. We can see similar practice even today among the Cajuns of rural Louisiana on All Saints Day, where families go to their family tombs to repaint them, lay flowers, and reestablish their family identities. Well, James, this is quite an interesting first look at the umwelt of a culture of quite different from those of the modern world, and yet not so different after all when one thinks about our own agricultural past in what was once a newly inhabited rural America. One thing I wonder is just how tightly an umwelt of religious multiplicity is tied to an agrarian culture. But I think we should pause here and continue our exploration in the next episode. Fair enough.